I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. This episode, I'm going to do something a little different. In past episodes, I focused on specific Greek gods and goddesses. There are a few other goddesses, though, that inhabit Mount Olympus and pop up occasionally in the Greek myths. There isn't really enough material to do a specific episode on them, so in this episode, I'm going to go through these additional Greek goddesses. First up, we have Hestia. She was one of the six original Olympians. At first, Hestia was the oldest child of Kronos and Rhea. But then, Kronos swallowed each of his children, and only later threw each of them up in reverse order. This counts as a second birth in the myth, so that meant that Hestia started off as the oldest, but ended up being the youngest. The Homeric hymn to Aphrodite mentions that both Poseidon and Apollo tried to marry Hestia, but that she turned both of them down. Instead, Hestia went to Zeus and swore an oath that she would remain a virgin and unmarried forever. Zeus gave high honors to Hestia, and she was made responsible for the home and the hearth, basically a fireplace that was at the center of an ancient Greek home. This made Hestia incredibly important in the ancient Greek religion, because Hestia was then responsible for things like cooking, making bread, and preparing the family meal. Everyone has to eat, so Hestia was no small thing. But the hearth was not only a cooking and food prep space within Greek homes, it was also a sacred space, where meat and different sacrifices would be made to various gods and goddesses. That meant Hestia was also responsible for sacrifices and tending the sacred flames. Because of this, Hestia received the first portion of every sacrifice. Since she had a flame in every Greek home, Hestia was probably worshipped more than any other deity. But Hestia herself had very few temples, and was usually worshipped within the temples of others. Funny enough, even one of the Homeric hymns to Hestia praises another god too, in this case, Hermes. Give it a listen. Hestia, in the high dwellings of all, both deathless gods and men who walk on earth, you have gained an everlasting abode and highest honor. Glorious is your portion and your right, for without you, mortals hold no banquet. And you, slayer of Argus, son of Zeus and Maia, messenger of the blessed gods, bearer of the golden rod, giver of good, be favorable and help us, you and Hestia, the worshipful and dear. Come and dwell in this glorious house in friendship together, for you too, well knowing the noble actions of men, aid on their wisdom and their strength. Hail, daughter of Kronos, and you also, Hermes, bearer of the golden rod. The key takeaway here is, since Hestia is responsible for the hearth, all sacrifices must pass through her, meaning she was actually an incredibly important Greek goddess, even though there weren't a lot of myths that featured her. Besides her birth and oath to remain a virgin, there were almost no myths about Hestia, and that is maybe because she doesn't actually leave Olympus. As it happens, there are several other inhabitants of Mount Olympus, mostly goddesses, who also do not feature in a lot of myths. They do occasionally pop up, though, so I thought now would be a good time to talk about these other immortals. Another one is Hebe. Her name comes from the Greek word for youth. She may also be called Basilia, meaning princess. Hebe was one of the daughters of Zeus and Hera. There is a piece of a poem by the poet Callimachus that describes how Hera celebrated on the seventh day after Hebe's birth. The gods had a contest over who could provide the best gift to the baby girl. Athena brought toys that were excellently carved, and Poseidon brought toys that were more precious than gold, and Hephaestus made something too, 
There's no word on what those toys were, though, but Apollo provided something different. He made a song for Hebe. Unfortunately, much of the poem is lost, and we don't know how it ended, nor who won. But I would expect that since Apollo offered a different type of gift, it may have been him that was the victor. Hebe was the goddess of youth, and there was good reason for this. On Mount Olympus, Hebe was Zeus's cupbearer, and was responsible for serving all of the immortals nectar and ambrosia in golden cups. These are the special food and drinks of the gods. The difference between nectar and ambrosia is not always clear, but in Homer's poems, nectar is the drink and ambrosia is the food, but in other archaic Greek sources, these are actually switched. The point, though, is this. The gods consume nectar and ambrosia, and this is what keeps them immortal and unaging. Since Hebe serves it to them, she is naturally the goddess of youth. Besides serving food and drink, Hebe had other chores around Olympus. In the Iliad, she helps her mother Hera climb into her chariot, and she even bathes her war god brother Ares and gives him fresh clothes. These are actually examples of tasks a young girl would be given in a real ancient Greek palace. The Homeric hymn to Apollo describes how Hebe was a companion of Aphrodite and danced with the love goddess and a few others too. The poet Pindar says that next to her mother Hera, Hebe was the fairest, the most beautiful of all the goddesses. Hebe was eventually married to the hero and son of Zeus, Heracles. Due to this, Hebe was considered an important goddess for brides. With Hercules, Hebe gave birth to two twin boys, Alexiaris and Anicetus. Not much is known about these brothers. They may have served as guardians of Olympus and were worshipped for their association with fortresses and citadels. Their names mean the unconquerable one and he who wards off war. Hebe was eventually joined in being the god's cupbearer, or even replaced in some versions by a human boy named Ganymede. He was actually brought to Olympus against his will. He was born near the city of Troy, and was said to be one of the most beautiful of all mortals. So Zeus, of course, decided to kidnap him. Zeus turned into a large eagle, grabbed the young man in his talons, and carried him to join the gods on Mount Olympus. But unlike in other cases of Zeus's kidnapping, the king of the gods decided to compensate Ganymede's father with a gift of horses. And these are the same kind of special horses that pull the gods' own chariots. Aletheia was one of the sisters of Hebe. The Odyssey mentions that she was born on the island of Crete. However, sometimes this goddess seems to be treated as a group of sisters. At one point in the Iliad, they are called the plural Aletheia, Hera's daughters, who hold the power of the bitter birth pangs. However, the Iliad also talks about a single Aletheia too. Usually in other sources, Aletheia is treated as a single goddess. Aletheia was the goddess of childbirth, and acted as a divine midwife, visiting pregnant women and aiding them during labor. The Homeric hymn to Deli and Apollo says that when Leto was pregnant with Apollo and Artemis, Hera prevented Aletheia from leaving Mount Olympus, to either prevent them from being born, or just to make the birth difficult for Leto. The other goddesses had to send for Aletheia themselves in order to get her to come. Aletheia may also have been linked to the three Moirae, the three fate goddesses. The archaic Greek poet Pindar says that she acts as a handmaiden at the throne of the Moirae, and the late Greek historian Pausanias claims that a legendary poet named Olon wrote a hymn to Aletheia where he calls her the Clever Spinner. Pausanias believed this clearly linked Aletheia to the fates, as they were believed to spin threads as a symbol of people's lives. 
Over time, the goddess Artemis gradually absorbed a lot of Aletheia's responsibilities over childbirth. Artemis was also considered a divine midwife, and she sometimes had the term Aletheia as one of her epithets. When the other goddesses sent for Aletheia to help Leto give birth to Apollo and Artemis, they sent another goddess, Iris, to go get her. Iris was the Greek goddess of the rainbow. She was not a daughter of Zeus. Instead, Iris was part of another branch of the large immortal family tree. After Kronos castrated Uranus, Gaia partnered with Pontus, the sea. They had a number of sea-related children, and one of them was Thalmus. Thalmus was partnered with Electra, another watery sea-related divinity. She was one of the Oceanids, the daughters of the titans Oceanus and Tethys. Thalmus and Electra were the parents of Iris and the half-bird, half-woman Harpies. In some accounts, Iris had another sister, named Arche. Iris joined the Olympians during the war against the Titans. Iris would go on to serve as the messenger of the gods. In this way, Iris connected the gods with humans, and connected the heavens and the underworld with the earth. Iris was described as golden-winged and swift-footed. In the version that mentions her sister Arche, Arche instead joined the Titans, and after their defeat, Zeus stripped her of her wings and threw her into Tartarus too. Iris's partner was said to be Zephyrus, the god of the west wind. There are four wind gods in Greek mythology, for each of the four directions. Zephyrus was linked with several other goddesses as well. Together though, Iris and Zephyrus were sometimes said to be the parents of Eros, the god of love, but usually Eros's parents are Aphrodite and Ares. Like Iris, the goddess Nike, not the shoe, was from another branch of the immortal family. According to Hesiod, Nike was the daughter of the titan Pallas and Styx, the nymph version of the underworld river. Pallas was the son of Creos, one of the original twelve titans. Nike's name means victory, and she had three siblings, Kratos, strength, Bia, force, and Zealous, zeal. Nike ended up on the side of the Olympians during the war against the titans due to her mother Styx. Styx went to Zeus to bring him the support of her entire family, and according to Hesiod, Styx knew that if Zeus won, he would allow all those who joined him to keep their honors, and would grant honors to his followers too. In response, Zeus made Styx the keeper of the most sacred oath. Nike was made responsible for driving Zeus's chariot and often accompanied him. As the personification of victory, Nike was obviously a patron of contests and athletes and also fame. One piece of a hymn from the 400s BC says, By the altar of Zeus, best ruler, the flowers of glory bringing Nike, nourish for men a golden reputation conspicuous in their lifetime always, and when the dark blue clouds of death cover them, there is left behind undying fame for the deed well done. On a larger scale, Nike was also linked to war, and conferred victory on the winning side. Another goddess is Nemesis, sometimes called Ramnusia, and she was the goddess of retribution. Nemesis paid back people for bad behavior, and if good things happened to them that they did not deserve. She is one of several goddesses, along with Iris and Nike, who are represented with wings. Who exactly her parents were changes. Sometimes she is the daughter of Oceanus, sometimes Zeus, and according to Hesiod, she was the daughter of the night goddess Nyx, without a father. In later sources, she is mixed in with Zeus's fathering of the beautiful woman Helen. The Greek poet Bacchylides, who lived around 520 to 450 BC, supposedly claimed her children 
were that strange group of creatures called the Telkines that I talked about in the Poseidon episode. Greek vases often represented Nemesis as one of a pair of goddesses. The other goddess was Tyche, the goddess of fortune and good luck. They were not necessarily sisters, though. The poet Pindar says that she was a daughter of Zeus, but Hesiod's Theogony and a Homeric hymn say that she was actually another Oshinid. Tyche was prayed to for good fortune, and that even included dying nobly in battle. Because she gave these things to mortals, she was like the fates, determining the destiny of individual human beings. In other myths, Tyche was one of the companions of Persephone when she was picking flowers before she was abducted by Hades. In an early episode, I mentioned the Horae, a small group of goddesses who are responsible for the seasons. They are the daughters of Zeus and the titan Themis. There were at least three of them, but different versions actually provide more Horae, sometimes as much as twelve, or even disagree on the core three Horae. Hesiod says the Horae were Enomia, order, Dyke, justice, and Irene, peace. Later sources give their names as something more relevant to their role over the seasons, calling them Thalo, spring, Oxo, summer, and Carpo, autumn. It could be that the Horae are actually two different sets of goddesses, and the different sources are giving us a glimpse of them in various states of being combined over time. The Horae themselves do not appear in a lot of myths. They largely stay on Mount Olympus, and in the Iliad are responsible for opening and closing Olympus's gates. They also provide weather to Earth. Another set of goddesses were the Muses, and they were the daughters of Zeus and the titan goddess Mnemosyne, according to Hesiod and some others. That is the most widespread view, although there are also some other archaic Greek poets, Alcman and Mimnermus, who lived around the time of Hesiod, that claim the Muses were much older, being daughters of Gaia and Uranus. Another Greek poet, Pausanias, who lived in the Roman period several hundred years later, claimed that there were two sets of Muses. One set were the daughters of Gaia and Uranus, and another set were the daughters of Zeus and Nemesini. I think that Pausanias may have actually just been trying to combine two conflicting myth traditions together. Classically, though, there are nine muses, but sometimes only three are given when referenced. In art, usually only three are shown together. Regardless of the number of muses, though, they are responsible for all of the arts, and for providing inspiration to poets, singers, dancers, artists, and others. But they are also goddesses of knowledge, and they provided the powers of speech and rhetoric to poets, but also to kings. Originally, though, they were likely nymph goddesses of wells, and able to inspire visitors who visited those local wells. In later periods of ancient Greece, each of the nine muses was assigned specific arts and areas of knowledge. The muses were imagined as entertaining the other gods and goddesses with their singing during feasts on Mount Olympus. Hesiod actually tells us some topics of their songs, saying they tell of things that are and that shall be, and that were before. In other words, they sing of the distant past, the present, and what will happen in the future. So, the muses seem to have a prophetic ability as well, like a number of other gods. The muses also sing of the children of Gaia and Uranus, and of course they sing of Zeus, and how he is the most excellent among the gods and supreme in power. Besides feasts, the muses also sing at the weddings of heroes and some of their funerals too. The archaic Greek poet Alcman says that the muses taught music to the god Apollo. They also spend their time dancing, especially with the Charites, another group of goddesses. 
Throughout a few of the past episodes, I've talked about a couple of stories of mortals challenging the gods or going against the will of the gods and then paying for it. Both Homer in the Iliad and Apollodorus's library talk about one incident featuring the muses. There was a man named Thamaris from Thrace, and he was a handsome youth and a skilled kitharist and singer. A kithar is a stringed instrument. It looks kind of like the bottom part of a guitar, with the strings suspended over a sound box. It also kind of resembles a lyre. Thamaris made an old mistake. He boasted that he was more talented than the muses. In Apollodorus's version, we get the specific details that Thamaris and the muses had a contest. If Thamaris won, he could sleep with all nine muses, and if the muses won, they could take from him whatever they wanted. Apollodorus says that the muses won, and they took from him his eyes and his musical talent. Homer says that they took his voice away and made him a singer without memory who was lost to later generations. A particularly grim ending to a poet who dreamed of fame. So if you thought the muses were just a bunch of light-hearted singers and artists, think again, because they took themselves very, very seriously. A similar group to the muses were the Karates, or the Graces. These goddesses were the personifications of grace, beauty, and joy. They were, as we might expect, the daughters of Zeus. Sometimes their mother is given as Hera, the Oshinid Eurynome, and sometimes others as well. The Karates were imagined as accompanying other goddesses, usually Hera or Aphrodite. They did a lot of dancing, often with the muses. Their names varied. When there was only one in a story, they were often referred to as Charis, which is also the singular form of the word Karates. Homer says that one Charis was the wife of the craftsman god Hephaestus, and another one Charis was married to the god of sleep Hypnos. Hesiod, for his part, says that the name of the one who married Hephaestus was named Agaleia. The number of Karates was also different in different places. Hesiod says that there were three Karates, and he lists their names as Aglaia, the wife of Hephaestus, and also Euphrosyne and Thalia. But in different parts of Greece, this was different. In Sparta, there were only two Karates, and they were named Cleta and Phaena. And in Athens, there were also only two, called Oxo and Hegemony. And this was the case fairly early in Greek history. And finally, we come to Eris. While a bunch of Greek gods do various terrible things at different times, the only one that was really considered evil by the ancient Greeks is Eris. She was the goddess of discord, rivalry, and disagreement, and she used these things to generally cause chaos or anarchy in the world. Eris took particular delight in the discord of war, and she haunted battlefields of opposing armies and delighted in the slaughter. In Homer's Iliad, she is called the Lady of Sorrow. Eris was the mother of several personifications, Panos, toil, Leith, forgetfulness, Limos, starvation, Dysnomia, lawlessness, Ate, ruin, and a bunch of others, but you get the point. Funny enough, she was also the mother of Horcus, oath. In myth, Eris was partly responsible for causing the Trojan War. The immortals were all attending the wedding feast of a human named Peleus and one of the Nereids, named Thetis. The earliest reference to this story dates to a fragment from the 500s or 600s BC. Eris started a fight between Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite as to which of them was the fairest, and later sources elaborate on how. Zudo Apollodorus says that Eris tossed an apple at them, inscribed for the fairest. The three goddesses then went to a human 
a Trojan prince named Paris to judge which of them was the fairest and deserved the apple. When he judged in favor of Aphrodite, he offended Hera and Athena, who then plotted against his city, Troy. Homer considers Eris a sister of Ares, and so she would be another child of Zeus and Hera. Interestingly, Hesiod mentions something different in his poem The Works and Days, that there are two heiresses. There is the hateful heiress, and this heiress could be the daughter of Zeus and the sister of Ares. This one builds up evil, war, and slaughter. She is harsh, no man loves her, but under compulsion and by the will of immortals, men promote this rough heiress. Hesiod's second heiress is kinder, and one he says you could like if you understood her. She's the daughter of Nyx. Nyx sent her to earth to live among men. She pushes lazy men to work, through envy. A man will look at his neighbor, who is rich, and then he too wants to work, for the rich man will be busy plowing and planting and ordering his estate. Neighbors envy neighbors, who then press on toward wealth. In this way, Hesiod says that Eris is a good friend to mortals. She causes envy, which Hesiod seems to consider a useful characteristic, and not a bad trait like it is considered today. I bring up the two heiresses because it may answer something about Eris that comes up in the Iliad. Homer considers Eris and another goddess named Enyo to be the same person. He uses their names interchangeably. Enyo is described as a goddess of warfare, a sacker of cities, and someone who carries the turmoil of hatred. She joins Ares in battle. It seems that Enyo could be another name for Hesiod's hateful Eris. They are remarkably similar. But later sources from the Roman period do seem to distinguish between the two. But that could just mean that they diverged with time. But, then again, maybe Enyo and Eris were originally different, after all. For that, I have to talk about another set of immortals. These are the Grey Sisters. They are well known as three ugly old women who shared one eye and one tooth. And this is the version in Apollodorus's library. But, a more ancient version, shared by Hesiod, is different. He says one of the Grey was named Enyo, and he doesn't agree about the one-eyed, one-tooth description of them either. To Hesiod, the Grey-Eye were well-dressed, and there were only two of them, not three. Hesiod also says that they were fair-cheeked, which I take to mean beautiful. Perhaps like with the Karates, we have an example here of a duet of goddesses that seem to have turned into three over time. Only with the Grey-Eye, their own characteristics may have changed in the process too. Today, I covered some of the immortal goddesses which pop up in Greek mythology, but who don't really appear as central characters, as they mostly stay on Mount Olympus and support other gods and goddesses in different ways. So far, I've covered almost all of the gods and goddesses that live on Mount Olympus, and even some of the ones that don't, such as Persephone and Hades. Next time on the pod, I'll talk about the king of them all, Zeus, so stay tuned. If you are liking this podcast, please get the word out and give the pod a 5-star review. It really helps with growing the pod and finding new listeners. As always, thank you for listening.